The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I just want to thank you so much for tuning into our show today. Our topic today is talking about domestic violence. Domestic violence across the lifespan is the focus. We will provide an understanding about what is domestic violence, signs and behaviors to be aware of in relationships, the traumatic impact to those being abused, as well as those that witness domestic violence in their home. We will talk about ways to identify abusive behaviors, the impact of violence across the lifespan, ways to assess your safety if you're experiencing violence, access to resources that are available in your community, and an understanding on how to help yourself or a loved one who may be being abused. As we start the discussion today, um, you may he- what you may hear may confirm that you or yourself are experiencing an abusive relationship or that somebody you love is and you may need to be reaching out for help. If during the show you need immediate help and support, we ask that you please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That is 1-800-799-7233. And their website, if you'd like to look for more information, is www.thehotline.org. This topic today is yet another area of work that crisis centers across the country provide 24 hours a day. As I've shared with you in previous shows, I am proud to serve as the CEO of Crisis Services, the 24-hour crisis center in Buffalo, New York. If you're interested in learning more about our agency and our organization, our mission, and how you can donate to our organization, please visit our website at www.crisisservices.org. As we begin our discussion, if you have any questions during the show, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. I want to welcome our first, uh, our two guests who are joining me today uh, to another amazing staff from our crisis services organization here in Buffalo. Robin Wiktorski Reynolds. Um, Robin received her undergraduate degree in English and Women's Studies from the SUNY College at Buffalo and her master's in social work from the University of Texas at Austin. In Austin, she supervised the family advocacy program at Safe Place. And upon returning to Buffalo, she worked as a clinical therapist at the Lee Gross Anthone Child 
Child Advocacy Center, serving children who've been sexually abused and severely physically abused. She joined us at Crisis Services in 2003 as a supervising counselor in the Advocate Program. In 2005, she had a brief tenure um, at the SBI, a not-for-profit at the University of Buffalo, as the director of their Health Education and Human Services. Robin returned to Crisis Services in 2006 as the Advocate Program Director, and that program is the designated Ripe Crisis Center for our community and is also a New York State-approved non-residential domestic violence provider, and she oversees the Sexual Assault Forensic Examiner Program. Rebecca Stevens, our other wonderful guest today, Um, is in her 16th year of employment at Crisis Services. Uh, She has been with the Advocate Program during that time. She's held various positions as a domestic violence case manager, a volunteer community training specialist, and a supervising counselor. In her current role as program supervisor, Rebecca provides daily oversight and supervision for the 24-hour client services of the Rape Crisis Program and the non-residential domestic violence, as well as our elder abuse services. Um, She also helps to oversee the New York State Domestic and Sexual Violence Hotline, which is a hotline that we actually answer here in Buffalo at Crisis Services. Her education background includes a a bachelor's in social work, as well as a master's in human service administration, both from the SUNY College at Buffalo. Um, And she's also served as board president for the Action for Mental Health. Um, as well as she was a member of the Federal Law Enforcement Elder Abuse Training Team and is currently serving as the communication chairs of our Erie County Coalition Against Family Violence. So I want to welcome them both to the show today. Thank you. Um, We are going to be offering, if you want to call in and ask any questions of us today, you can call in during the show toll-free at one 866 Four seven two five seven nine two. That's one eight eight. I'm sorry, one eight six six four seven two five seven nine two. So to begin our discussion today, I wanted to just share with you some statistics to help set the stage around the seriousness of domestic violence in our country. Each year, we see medical expenses from domestic violence totaling at least three to five billion dollars. An estimated 4 million American women are battered each year by their husbands or their partners, but only 10% will report this abuse to police. One in four and one in seven men aged 18 and older in the United States have been a victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in six women and one in 19 men have experienced stalking victimization at some point during their lifetime in which they felt very fearful or believed that someone close to them would either harm them or kill them. So to start this discussion, Robin, can you share with our listeners what is domestic violence? Absolutely. Uh, Domestic violence is when one person is using a variety of behaviors and tactics to exert power and control over another person. Uh, This is something that can be happening over a period of time with throughout a a long-term relationship, or it could be something that happens very quickly, especially when relationships uh, move on in their level of commitment or intimacy. Um, domestic violence takes many forms. Um, we're often used to hearing about domestic violence in terms of physical violence, and some of those actions are things like slapping, hitting, uh, strangulation, um, any other sort of physical force um, against someone else. But something that is really important to talk about when we're discussing domestic violence or intimate partner violence is all the other ways 
that an abuser exerts this power and control. There's different types of violence from emotional violence, financial violence, sexual violence, stalking behaviors like you had mentioned in some of your right. statistics. Um, and that emotional abuse, oftentimes what you're seeing there is when someone is um, being minimized, um, when they're being called various names, um, when they're being um, really put down and being led to believe that they have no self-worth. You know, in our work um, here at Crisis Services and the, the victims that we serve, we often hear that that emotional abuse is sometimes more harrowing than the physical violence because it really get cuts to the core of someone's self-esteem, the way that they feel about themselves. And we often hear perpetrators say things like, no one else will love you, you're not good enough for anyone else. And for some people, when you hear that over and over again, you might start to really internalize those those statements as truths, uh, making right. it sometimes harder to leave the relationship. Right. Um, financial um, abuse is really important, especially when you're looking at um, uh, victims who have children. Um, you know, a lot of times we hear um, people in the community say, if we're speaking about, you know, women being the survivors of these crimes, you know, why does she stay? Right. Why is she staying Absolutely. in this relationship? And what we know is that um, there are many reasons why somebody does stay. And if you have an abuser who is the breadwinner in the family, who's controlling the finances, who is making the decisions about when and where the money will be spent or um, how much money should be spent on food. And you have uh, the, the, the wife or the partner who has very limited economic independence, it's going to be very difficult for that person to pick up, take their children and leave that situation not knowing what their financial future is going to look like. And that's why you will often see people leaving and coming back, leaving and coming back, because one of those reasons is that financial stability. Um, the other piece that we hear about, and, and I don't know if we hear about it enough, is sexual violence within the context of these relationships. I would hope to think that at this day and age, the majority of America recognizes that Though people may be married or common-law married or have engaged in intimacy at different points in their relationship, that that does not give a partner the right at any time to require, force, coerce someone into any type of sexual activity with them or with other people, frankly. And really, it wasn't until the 80s um, in this country uh, where there were actually laws put on the books that marital rape actually is a real thing. So it's important that if you're listening today or you know of someone and you hear things about you know, them doing um, things um, sexually because they're feeling intimidated to do so, that that is against the law. It is a crime and it is, it is rape. So sexual violence within the context of domestic violence is, is definitely something that happens. Um, it maybe isn't something that's talked about a whole lot. And stalking is one of, um, one of the areas of abuse that is very scary to people. Um, you know, a lot of times we hear about stalking in the context of strangers, which is legitimate and absolutely happens. But what we hear about with stalking within the context of domestic violence is perpetrators uh, taking on activities to constantly monitor their victim, whether that's through monitoring through their cell phones monitoring the actions um, of the, you know, where they're moving about in their car, you know, where they've been on the internet, 
um, to sometimes showing up places uh, where the victim has no idea how they knew that they were there. Right, right. Um, and some of that may be um, because there's actual, you know, uh, devices that are placed or there's a monitoring going on. And sometimes it may be actually very random, but that sense of fear is instilled so deeply within victims, they often feel like they're going crazy. And they are very fearful because they don't know at any point where that the perpetrator may, may show up. So those are just some examples of um, domestic violence um, behaviors. But it really is about power and control and um, maintaining that um, over a victim. And I think it's really important how you highlighted that it's it's not just the physical abuse. I think people still think that, well, if he isn't hitting you, then it's you should be okay. Absolutely. But it's really, there's all these other aspects of domestic violence that really play into the overall power and control that that person is trying to instill over that yes. other person. I, and, and with that, we see a lot that um, perpetrators cause isolation for the the victim um, from their friends and their family. And sometimes it's very, um, over time, it's it's not so abrupt. It's a subtle kind of gradual uh, mm-hmm. isolation. Mm-hmm. How does this happen and why does this happen? Certainly. Isolation is a tool. Um, it's, it's very scary, um, but it's used by the majority of perpetrators where they start to um, alienate the victim from their family members. And that's done either in very direct ways, such as we are not going to go to your parents tonight, or, you know, your your sister has not been supportive of our marriage. You should not talk to her. If, if, if you love me and you love this relationship and this family, you will, you know, you'll not maintain contact or you'll cut her out. But the other thing that we see that is so incredibly sad is that when survivors continue to um, you know, stay in the relationship. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to make a decision about leaving. They, they come and they go. The family or friends get so tired and so frightened about what might happen. And they don't understand anymore about why you keep going back to this person who's, who's not good to you. you. You know, that's not how we raised you, whatever the case may be. Um, and sometimes family members choose to disengage from the victim in sort of a like a tough love moment. Right, right. Uh, and that's exactly playing into the hands and the tactics of the perpetrator. So isolation is very, unfortunately, effective, but it's one of those things that we like to be sure to share with family members and loved ones. Please keep the door open to the victims that might be in your family because they're going to need you at some point, maybe at one of the scariest and most life-threatening points. Absolutely. So when we talk about domestic violence, we often hear that there's a cycle of violence. Rebecca, can you share with our listeners what exactly is the cycle of violence? I think it's important to note that domestic violence isn't a one-time only event. Rather, it's a pattern of abusive and controlling behaviors by a perpetrator to gain power and control over that victim. Um, We talk about the cycle in a way to try to identify what that pattern looks like. Um, Every victim is going to know what that pattern is for them in their experience, and every victim's survivor's um, experience with that cycle is going to be different. So there are three stages that we generally talk about. Um, First, also, it's important to note that no victim chooses to be in an abusive relationship. These batterers were able to become partners because they proved themselves to be charming and charismatic and trustworthy, and that's how the victim engaged in the relationship in the first place. But then over time, little things start to pop up 
whether it's jealousy or not allowing them to spend time with their friends and family or small little arguments over things that seem to be nothing. And those things will become um, increasingly more evident and increasingly more frequent until it leads into what we call an incident or an explosion. And that's going to look different for every abusive relationship. Like we mentioned, Robin talked about that everything isn't physical. That explosion may not be a physical assault, but it will be an incident that brings fear and terror into that victim, which is unfortunately um, means that that perpetrator is at greatest risk for losing control over the victim because now they've demonstrated that they are a violent person and have that um, tendency. So the victims may be most likely to leave at that point. But... In order to continue that abusive behavior and that cycle, the perpetrator will again try to re-engage the victim and lead into what we call the honeymoon phase where they'll apologize and promise this will never happen again and uh, do things to try to re-engage the victim into that relationship, ultimately just restarting that cycle because this isn't about the victim, it's about that perpetrator's need to control and bring terror and fear into their relationship. We often see that it takes um, a lot of time for a victim to make the decision to leave, and sometimes they leave multiple times, go back, um, and that's part of that cycle, right? As you were mentioning, that that maybe that incident happens, and then the you know the apologies come, or the I won't do that again, or I can't believe that that happened, and so you're thinking, okay, I'll give this another try. So that's part of that that cycle, right? That's what you're seeing a lot of times when you're working with with our clients here at Crisis Services. Absolutely. Nationally, the number is it takes a person eight times to attempt to leave or to try to get help before they're actually committed or successful in in leaving an abusive relationship. And part of that is just the hope that things will get better and the belief that they love this person. They've established a relationship. They may have a family and they are committed to trying to make that work and trying to see what they can do to make a change without sort of the understanding that that perpetrator also has to be engaged in making it better right. and in not being abusive and having a healthy relationship rather than an abusive one. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that these are such important pieces um, to understand the dynamics of domestic violence. Um, and there's there's just, uh, it's such a process for people when they're experiencing this type of abuse to make the decisions that they have to make for the safety for the themselves and their families, um, and um, at times can be at high risk uh, for what may be a, a life-impacting decision uh, for them. So um, we have so much that we're going to be reviewing today on our show, and as we um, start to um, look towards heading to our first break, I do want to remind everyone that during the show, if you do need to talk to a counselor, um, please know that there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline that's available. It's one 800 799-7233. And these counselors are there to help you to review your relationship, what's going on, and link you to the, your local community resources. So I think that's really a critical piece for you to know today is reaching out and making that call can really help you to decide some next steps um, in your relationship. So I want to thank Robin and Rebecca for, for sharing some insight already into this issue of domestic violence. So please stay tuned. Um, you're listening to The Journey, Stories of crisis and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black and Dari Samia. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. Um, today I have Robin Wittorski-Reynolds and Rebecca Stevens joining me to talk about domestic violence across the lifespan. And just a reminder, as you're listening in today, if you have any questions for us uh, during the show, you're welcome to give us a call toll-free at one 866 472 5792. Before the break, we gave a, a comprehensive overview of the dynamics of what domestic violence is. And I think we want to highlight, spend a little time just highlighting some of the risks um, that we should be aware of, uh, both the, the individual who may be in the abusive relationship as well as their fr- family and friends who may be observing uh, this relationship in front of them. So, Robin, can we talk a little bit about what are some of the risks uh, that victims of domestic violence should take into account when they're assessing? their safety and their relationship. Absolutely. Uh, We have learned over the years um, that there are a few factors that really raise some serious red flags with uh, survivors when it comes to domestic violence. You know, when you have perpetrators saying things like, if you leave, I'll kill myself, or, you know, if I can't have you, no one will have you, those sorts of statements, um, we know that there is an increased risk for 
for an increased danger to survivors. Um, you can couple that with access to weapons, especially guns. Unfortunately, we understand that more than 50% of homicides in this country are the results of an intimate partner or a former intimate partner. And oftentimes weapons are used. Um, guns, having access to guns, um, which could be you know, a neighbor's gun or a family member's gun, definitely increases the risk um, of lethality for, for a victim of domestic violence. And lastly, certainly this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some of the three main ones that we, we can certainly point to, is um, abuse to pets. Um, we know that um, pets are fur babies, as we like to call them around <laughs> here are valued and prized members of many households, family members across this this country. And um, we see that threats to pets, but also the, the, um, the, the harming of, the mutilation of, or the killing of pets is, is a serious red flag to victims. And we often see it being used as sort of a, a message to, to the victim about right. that they could be next. Um, so I would say that those are a few things to, to listen for. Certainly um, not all three need to exist, and not even one of them needs to exist in terms of there being a, a danger present in a relationship. But definitely as advocates, as, as crisis counselors, those are things that we're listening for to help people safety plan around that. You know, and one of the goals of our show is not only provide education, but to really give people the resources to know that their community is there to help. And I think the piece about pets is really important that your local SPCA may actually be able to help you. We have seen that locally here, that when we have somebody that's looking to leave a relationship and go into shelter, for example, or they need to go to a family member and they can't take the pet with them, that their local shelter, SPCA, has a crisis planning with them, that they could house their pet for a period of time to help them through that crisis. So, I think that's a really important piece for people to know that that is a resource that's available to them in their communities. And there's even um, some movements across the country where they're opening up shelters where people can bring their pets. There's not many, but we have certainly seen them starting to crop up. And here in New York State, um, a database was created actually out of Buffalo um, that helps survivors connect with those um, shelters or foster homes or whatever um, to help assist in their leaving. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, during the show, if you have any questions, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, that's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So in setting the stage of this conversation and talking about domestic violence across the lifespan, this is really an issue that deals, that impacts all ages. So we want to shift gears to really focus on talking about teen dating violence, because really setting the stage of a relationship starts with our teen relationships. So Robin, can you talk a little bit about uh, what is the statistics around teen dating violence and maybe some of the types of abuse that teens may see that's a little different than adults? Absolutely. Um, What we know is that about one in 10 high school students has experienced physical violence from a dating partner in the past year. High school students. About one in five women And nearly one in seven men who ever experienced rape or physical violence by an intimate partner, that they first experienced some form of partner violence between the ages of 11 and 17 years of age. We also know that one in three, or 36%, dating college students has given a dating partner their computer, email, or social network passwords, and that these students are more likely to experience what we call digital dating abuse. And what's really interesting about that last statistic is that it really highlights the generation that we are uh, raising in terms of our 
you know, social media and, and technology savviness. Um, and what we understand is that digital abuse is absolutely one of the forms of abuse that is being used. And it's certainly being used for our, you know, um, adults and older adults, but um, with these younger generations really being raised um, to communicate and to socialize over social media platforms, um, it's, uh, it's ripe with um, 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 potential exploitation. Um, and so when we think about digital abuse, things that we want to think about is, you know, a perpetrator telling, um, you know, their, their partner who to be friends with on Facebook, um, using social media platforms as sort of a form of surveillance or stalking of, of their partner. Um, you know, we'll see things like put downs on status updates um, or really adding unkind tags and pictures that might be on Instagram. Um, this other piece, too, is, is we're hearing about um, kiddos who are you know, receiving these unwanted, explicit images from their partner, mm-hmm. and then the partner is demanding the same back. Right, right. Um, we're also seeing that um, victims are being, you know, forced to, or the perpetrator steals their passwords to all of these different platforms, which makes them even more more vulnerable. And of course, that constant texting, which you know, in earlier generations would be constant phone calls or, <laughs> right. or you know things like that right. it's constant texting to that place where the victim feels they can't leave their they can't leave their phone um, so when we were talking earlier about the different types of violence there are the same again we're talking about power and control just at a younger age and so the physical violence it's going to be very similar around the scratching or the hitting hair pulling you know something around you know smacking someone on the bottom um, you have to think about the way we might be, you know, teaching children what courtship looks like and what might appear to be, um, you know, playful, toyful sort of um, um, physical contact may actually be sending a very clear message about whose property or who, you know, who the victim actually belongs to. Um, and this idea of, of perpetrators grabbing somebody's face to make them look at them is something mm. that again, because it's not necessarily pushing or slapping, but it's putting hands on someone and forcing them to do something they may not want to do, um, it's, it's definitely something that happens. The emotional abuse is going to look very similar, and we absolutely hear about young kids um, being told by their partner that they're going to commit suicide um, if they leave them, which is a very heavy burden for kids that are um, developing, um, who are maturing, um, to really understand and grasp the weight of that kind of a statement. Okay. So that's a lot to take in, not only for a teen at that age, but also as a parent who may be witnessing um, their child going through an abusive relationship or just kind of seeing that something's not quite right or, you know, or just playing it off that kids are being kids, which is something that we need to step away from and try to help support our young teens who are experiencing abusive relationships. Rebecca, what are some things that parents can do to help their child if they are in an abusive relationship? For anyone, witnessing a loved one in an abusive relationship can be incredibly frustrating and fearful and also terrifying. Um, But for parents, especially when it's their little one that they're trying to raise and want to protect, it can be even harder to allow the child to to make their own decisions, but that's really important because that's the exact behavior that a perpetrator is doing, is taking choices and decision-making skills away from their teen. And what a parent might tend to want to do is to tell the child, you can't see that person anymore, I don't like them, I don't trust them. And what that actually might do is alienate or move that kid onto the side of the perpetrator 
and away from the parents who are their support system. The most important thing is to create an open level of communication with their parent, make the kid feel, make your child feel like you can come to them or they can come to you if they have any concerns. Um, maybe expressing your concerns in a way that isn't blaming their abusive partner, but talking about the behaviors that concern them instead of about the person, because that way you're just saying, for example, I don't like the fact that you receive 50 texts a day versus I don't like John. Making it, a, making it about the actions instead of the perpetrator might help to create conversation instead of making the victim feel defensive or making your child feel defensive. That's a really good point. Absolutely. Um, planning next steps. If, the kid, if your kid does come to you and discuss some concerns, having, um, being prepared with what information is available and what some might, planning might be um, is a good step. Loveisrespect.org is a great resource for parents and for teens that can discuss things like safety planning and um, let you know what resources are available in your community. Um, but communication, openness, um, being available, and like Robin mentioned earlier, not letting isolation, not letting your child feel like they're isolated and they're alone and can't get out of the situation because there's no one left to turn to are probably the most important things. Wonderful. Can you just repeat that website one more time? Because I think that would be a great resource for parents to check out. Absolutely. Um, Loveisrespect.org. Great. Thank you. So we, we in talking about um, relationships and healthy versus unhealthy relationships, we see that um, domestic violence or abusive behaviors and relationships can really be the experience and the building blocks for um, our teens and as they go into adult relationships. Um, and then we also see this continuing through the lifespan where we might see domestic violence grow old, for example, where the domestic violence in a, an adult relationship continues on um, as somebody becomes um, older in life. Um, but there's also some cha- changes to um, that type of relationship as well and who might be the perpetrator. Um, at that point in our, our life. So we're going to go from teens to talk about elder abuse. Um, Robin, who, who are usually the perpetrators in this type of violence when you talk about elder abuse? When we're talking about elder abuse, we are often seeing not only a spouse, you know, someone that this person may have been married to for decades, but we start to see adults' children become the uh, perpetrators more often than not. Um, You also want to add to that list other caretakers that um, may be in that individual's life, could be another family member. Um, It could even be grandchildren. You know, we're looking at, um, you know, multi-generational family situations that are all living together where often grandparents are raising um, their grandchildren. Um, And I would say that a, a common denominator with the the children that are abusive of their parents is we often see unaddressed mental health needs, mm-hmm. um, addictions, um, and, and other um, uh, barriers that get in the way of the elder being safe. So the, the perpetrators, really, it's, it's anybody that really is close to them and has access to them in that way. Absolutely. So, Rebecca, we see in the work that we do here um, and across the country that um, the service needs for working with victims of elder abuse um, are a little different than um, other types of victims. So could you talk a little little bit about those service needs for the elderly? Sure. I think uh, an interesting um, 
issue that faces our elder generation might be that um, as they've grown older, they might have some more medical concerns than maybe our younger survivors do, and therefore they may require um, assistance. So fleeing, for example, and going to shelter may not be as easy because they may require nursing attention that a shelter just simply can't provide, right? Um, which limits their access to services. Also, the perpetrator themselves may be somebody who themselves has a physical disability, and this long-term victim of domestic violence may now be acting as a caregiver for their perpetrator. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the victim is willing to leave them without care. So now in order to provide safety to the victim, we actually have to provide safety to the perpetrator or at least um, medical support or whatever needs and housing for the perpetrator in order to remove the victim safely from that situation. Um, There also could be concerns such as um, limited income. As the seniors grow old, access and monies that might be available to them to flee a relationship may be restricted or limited. Um, And there also could just be things like access to transportation. Um, A lot of survivors that are older in age may have lived in their home for 50 years outside of a city or in a suburban area and maybe getting access to where the services actually are becomes a struggle or um, at least a barrier in finding services quickly. Or even, honestly, even the knowledge that a services might be available to them. Right, right. Domestic violence has really, um, the awareness of domestic violence has really grown in the last 30 years. And these are people that may have been in an abusive relationship for upwards of 50 years. So even knowing what this is called, that it's not okay, and that there's help available may be a new conversation for them. And I, you know, I think it's so critical um, when we look at the face of elder abuse to understand, and as Robin pointed out earlier, um, that the perpetrator really can be a, a, a variety of people that might be in their lives. It may not necessarily be their family. Like you said, it could be a caregiver um, or their adult children. I mean, we see that more and more with adult children living at home longer, <laughs> good, bad, or indifferent. Um, Um, But I think that that's a really important piece to understand when you're talking about the dynamics of abuse, um, that you might have a a child who's taking care of their parent, and from the outside it looks like they're doing a great thing, but you don't know what's happening um, necessarily behind closed doors. Um, So as we start to head into break, I just want to share a couple websites. There's the National Center of Elder Abuse, uh, which is www.ncea.aoa.com. Gov. Um, National Center of Elder Abuse is a great resource that you can check out. And a reminder, if you have any questions or you need immediate assistance during the show, to please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. We're going to be heading into break. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Stay with us. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show & Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skincare Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. 
Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, Voice America at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. Um, again, I have with me today Robin Wiktorski Reynolds and Rebecca Stevens uh, talking about domestic violence across the lifespan. And we've we've touched on domestic violence overall, what that is, what that looks like. We talked about teens. We've talked about elder abuse. Um, so we want to focus on the smallest victims of domestic violence and the impact on children. We see that 30 to 60% of perpetrators of intimate partner violence also abuse children in the household. And there's a common link between domestic violence and child abuse. Um, Among victims of child abuse, 40% report domestic violence in the home. So it's a piece that we really have to pay attention to when there's children involved um, in the relationship. So Robin, can we just talk a little bit about the impact on children who are witnessing domestic violence? Certainly. And I think it's really important to share that you know, one of the things that we hear moms say and dads say, because of course we want to remember that men are also victims of uh, domestic violence, whether that's in, um, you know, a heterosexual or a homosexual relationship. But what we hear parents say is that I don't want to raise this child without the other parent, mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. somehow that is going to have greater harm. And what we really help um, survivors see through is that if you are not safe, your children are not safe. Um, And what we understand is that when kiddos are raised in an environment that they're seeing their parent be abused, it is trauma. And we know it can have adverse um, impacts on their health and their development. Um, These kiddos are often experiencing um, things like anxiety and depression. You know, they may engage in other uh, behaviors like bullying or fighting you may see regression in a child. So you may have a, a child who is now wetting the bed um, or behaving developmentally below their, their age. 
Um, they're going to they're going to have poor school performance. You're going to see truancy. You're going to see these kids potentially running away. What do we know about kids who run away? They know, but this home is not safe. Kids do not run away from homes that are safe. Um, we understand that they're going to engage in other high risk behaviors. Um, there's an increased risk of sexual abuse also by the perpetrator, whether that's their biological parent or uh, by a step-parent. Unfortunately, that is um, a truth we don't like to address, um, but the, the child abuse includes sexual abuse of children. But what's very important to, um, to remember is that children learn from the home relationships. That becomes their normal. So as parents, if we're seeing that maybe our teens, like we were discussing earlier and Rebecca was giving some tips for parents, when thinking about, you know, where might this be coming from, it really is a time for parents to potentially reflect on their own relationships and what might be happening in the home that has impacted their child or could impact their child. Um, but I think it's also incredibly important to remember that kiddos are resilient. And with the appropriate interventions, with that parent feeling empowered and having a safe place to go, these kids can live, and we know, we know these kids, very healthy and productive lives and engage in healthy relationships. I don't want anyone ever losing hope on kids that are being raised in these environments. There is hope as long as we do something about it and we, we, we stay engaged and help those that might be in um, uh, serious violence in their homes. I think one of the things that, um, just to encourage, and going back to the word you just used is empowering um, uh, the parent, is the concern that they're, you know, because of the domestic violence, that their children would be possibly taken away from them. And we know that that's such a dynamic that can impact a woman or a man's decision to leave an abusive relationship. But I think it's just important to highlight that you're doing this for yourself and for your children. And by reaching out for help, you're showing the step that you're looking to make that change. And in showing that empowerment is really important um, so that the family unit can stay together and that you're doing the right thing to help protect your child. Um, and so I think that's just something I wanted to highlight because I yeah. know we hear that a lot from our own clients that that that's they're just very scared um, mm-hmm. to make that step even though they know that this is impacting their children because they're worried they're going to lose their children. And it is part of that isolation, right? So the more that we can encourage people to reach out, you know, these hotlines that people are calling, the ones that Jessica has been sharing, these are confidential hotlines. So you don't even need to give your name. You can just share some of your your experience and get some guidance, baby steps. That's how we like to refer to them. Absolutely. So one of the things we want to talk about as well is that, you know, we've been talking about the impact of domestic violence within the home, within the family. Um, but this is also an issue that, that goes beyond those four walls, goes beyond the home. And we've talked and seen um, about the impact of domestic violence in the workplace. Um, Because really, when we talked about stalking behaviors earlier, or just those kind of controlling behaviors, this is going to impact that person regardless of where they are. And we have had a lot of conversation over the years of trying to improve uh, workplace response to victims of domestic violence, but also just safety around the workplace for for those that are experiencing domestic violence. Um, Just to give you a little insight into the impact of domestic violence on the workplace, nearly 80 million days of paid work each year is lost due to domestic violence issues. That's the equivalent of more than 32,000 full-time jobs. 
96% of domestic violence victims who are employed experience problems at work during t- because of the abuse. And more than 70% of United States workplaces do not have a formal program or policy that addresses workplace and uh, violence. And so that's something we're going to touch on right now. So, Rebecca, can you just share with our listeners what are things that employers can do to support their employees who are experiencing a domestic violence relationship? Thanks, Jessica. Um, I think what's really Probably the key is having an open environment in the workplace where domestic violence is something that can be talked about without fear of retribution. Um, the perpetrator certainly has made the victim feel afraid of many things, and uh, creating a safe environment for victims while they're out of the home is probably the number one thing that an employer can do. So I would say first start with having educational programs in the workplace about what is domestic violence and what are services and options for people that are employed there that are experiencing domestic violence. Creating workplace policies is a a really important way for employers to help victims feel safe and to increase, actually physically increase their victim's safety or their, I'm sorry, their employees' safety while they're on their premises. Mm -hmm. Um, Workplacesrespond.org is a fantastic resource that's available For any of your listeners, I'd suggest they go on that website and ask their employer whether or not they do have a domestic violence policy. What a domestic violence policy typically consists of is having safety measures in place. Um, Maybe there are things like uh, security cameras on site or people that could be offering to walk victims to and from their cars if they're feeling safe leaving or coming into the building, Um, talking about orders of protection and what an employer can do to be aware of an order of protection if a victim has one and keep one on site in that facility so that they feel safe being present in the building and knowing that people in the building, in their um, workplace, know what to do if something happens that jeopardizes their safety. Right, right. And I think that's an important piece. If you do have an order of protection, that that is something you talk with your employer about because that is something that they can help to do that planning with you as well as to be alert um, if your receptionist or front desk needs to know what that person looks like um, so that they can take quick action because, unfortunately, we have seen um, in tragedies when, um, you know, a perpetrator sometimes goes after their victim, then that also is a result of death of other people and a lot of times we have seen that in the workplace environment so it is really important that as an employer that you're paying attention to this policy and and that that resource that you shared is it's there's a lot of templates that people can quickly put a policy together and have in place for the, for their workplace so that's a great resource um, to to look into so for the the last couple minutes here of our show I'd really love to just kind of focus on what are um, when someone is in a crisis or is just ex- is experiencing a violence in their relationship, what are the services that are available? Could we just talk a little bit about the different types of services? Certainly. Uh, one of the first services that um, is really it's it's accessible to everybody is hotline. Um, every uh, state, of course, uh, Jessica has been sharing the national domestic violence hotline, and every state has a hotline. And drill it down even further. Most counties also have 24-hour hotlines where you can confidentially call and just talk with someone about what you may be experiencing and what your local resources might be or sometimes just to get some support. Um, 
The other thing that's been great is that more and more hotlines are becoming equipped with chatting or texting capabilities. Certainly not every single one of them, but the national hotline also has a, a chatting and texting option where uh, for people who don't feel comfortable talking, more comfortable texting, or maybe people who have um, physical limitations um, where you know talking on the phone doesn't uh, work for them, they still have access to talk with someone. Um, shelter is what I think most Americans equate with domestic violence shelter with um, um, a domestic violence service. And shelters are put in place um, to help protect victims. Most of them are in confidential locations, though um, some are not. Um, and the point is to help uh, give the, the victim and their family some, uh, some respite and to determine some next steps for their housing. Um, we are acutely aware of the amount of times law enforcement responds to homes uh, when there's a domestic violence incident. Um, here in New York State, on every domestic incident report, which is the paperwork that uh, law enforcement fills out when they respond to one of these calls, the New York State uh, Domestic and Sexual Violence Hotline is on every domestic incident report um, to point people in the right direction. Um, but but police um, involvement can pave the way towards securing a criminal order of protection. We were talking before about orders of protection, and essentially this is an order from a judge stating that the perpetrator needs to either stay away from the victim and potentially the children, the residents, wherever it is um, determined um, for a period of time um, pending um, um, contempt of court and, and going to jail. Um, there's also, um, it's got different names in different states, but we refer to it as a non-offensive order where the, uh, the victim and the perpetrator can be near one another, but the perpetrator has to refrain from any um, abusive um, um, uh, behaviors. There's also ways that victims can access that order of protection and not involve the police, and that's usually through your family courts. So can we just talk, we have a, a few minutes left, um, what's, what are some pieces for a safety plan that somebody can to, uh, put together when they are in an abusive relationship? Uh, what are some ideas for safety planning? Um, so when our advocates, for example, either on the hotline or face-to-face -face with a survivor if they respond to a hospital, what they typically will talk about with somebody is um, what, are their, what are their wants, first of all. Are you looking to leave a relationship or are you looking to remain in the household with that person? Um, and then sort of assess from there. So if they're looking to leave, obviously uh, things like shelter would be first and foremost on the safety plan. Um, but if you're looking to stay in a relationship in a household with somebody who you might be a little bit afraid of or intimidated by, things like where in the house, if you need to leave, could you flee to? Is there a room in the house that you could lock yourself in or have a window out of where you could escape if need be? Do you have a cell phone that you can keep on your person? Um, is there friends and family members that maybe you could um, give an extra bag of clothing to or some some cash in the event that you needed to flee quickly in an emergency, is there someplace safe that you could stash um, an emergency kit, for lack of a better right, word, with? Right. Um, or what kind of important papers do you have in your life, and can you put those together someplace where you have access to them? So therefore, at least isn't 
um, making the perpetrator able to hold those things away from you. So if you did decide to leave, you'd have what you need in order to start over. Wonderful. And I think it's really important to talk about having copies of very important paperwork because if you do need to leave quickly, that is really something that you're going to need, especially for yourself or your children um, if you are leaving the relationship. So we have covered a lot of information today. Um, As I've highlighted throughout the show, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is a great resource and it could be your first step for either you who are experiencing uh, the abuse or a friend or family member and how to talk with somebody that you're concerned about. So please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. And their website is www.thehotline.org. We've also shared a couple other resources today. Uh, The National Network to End Domestic Violence is another website you can check out. Um, And I do want to highlight the teen uh, website that Rebecca shared earlier in the show, loveisrespect.org. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today um, with this very critical conversation. Um, It's critical for those who are in an abusive relationship to know that you're not alone and that there is someone that's here to help you um, make that step towards safety for yourself and your children. So thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please, if you have any questions or comments about the show, email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.